does this maxed out? If you is yours blocking out, or is it my headphones? I think it's your, either your headphones or your head, your rude head. Welcome to the Unforgiving Sixty with your hosts Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. It's the Unforgiving 60 podcast. Jeez. Uh, let's start that again. I don't know how to start. <laughs> Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host Ben Pronk. G'day, Ben. G'day, Tim. Uh, ben, today on the show, we've got Harry Garside. Mm. Harry's 24 years old. He actually has won six Australian national championships. Mm-hmm. In boxing. Mm-hmm. He's a won a gold medal at the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games. Um, but most recently, he won a bronze. In fact, he'll talk about not winning a bronze. Being awarded being a awarded bronze. a bronze medal at the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Some interesting things about Harry is he started a box at nine years old. He would describe himself in his early years as a, quote, wimp. <laughs> um, and unrelated to that, he, uh, during the 2020 Olympics, wore nail polish under his gloves. Yeah, and this is what I love about this chat, as if it wasn't a spectacular enough life and an interesting enough chat just on the sporting side of it. Um, Harry represents so much more than that. And then the nail polish is a very sort of external, um, I guess, representation of the kinds of things he stands for. And that includes looking at life a bit differently, breaking down stereotypes and trying different ways of making yourself better and being a better human. Yeah, and in terms of those meaningful challenges, he talks a lot about all the things that he's incorporating into his life and the transferability of those things, including ballet, which logically makes sense because, you know, okay, mm-hmm. they've got good footwork and transfer weight well. But he talks about um, undertaking ballet because... It was odd. It was peculiar. It was threatening. He had to be pretty vulnerable at being hopeless at it to start with. Yeah, and we're going to talk with Harry a lot about this idea of courage, both physical courage, getting into the ring with someone who's trying to punch you in the face, and moral courage, standing up for things that you believe in, and as we we mentioned before, challenging uh, people's notions of what it means to be a man, a tough guy, whatever it might be that that, um, tends to get stereotyped in the the modern world. Yeah, and what it means to succeed, but also how to fail. And he'll talk about loss and how he reflects on loss through the course of the episode. Let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Ben Prong. And I'm Tim Curtis. And 
This week, Tim, for the very first time, we're joined by not only an Olympian, mm-hmm. but an Olympic medalist. Fantastic. I mean, you have an elite athlete opposite you in most <laughs> most podcasts, but not an Olympian. That's true. Harry Garside, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm excited. Hey, mate, first up, congrats. That is absolutely huge what you, you achieved in Tokyo. Um, I know we're, we're coming at you a, a fair bit after the date, but, you know, having had a chance to reflect on it... Um, has it sunk in? Does it does it feel real, or are you just focused on the next hill? Like, how how have you sort of reflected on the the actual win? Yeah, it's it's interesting. First of all, like personally, I, I don't classify as a win. Um, I I don't think you win a bronze medal. I think you receive a bronze medal because you lose a fight. Mm. So, um, it was it's been interesting, mate. I I went numb for for probably two months post the Olympics where. I mean, I was just in like, I don't really understand why it happened. But from the point that I lost to about two months later, I just felt really numb. And the only thing that was giving me energy uh, was my partner. That was the only time where I felt like myself. But any other time of the day, I really felt flat. Goes into something like that, goes into an Olympic Games. Um, five hard years of training and then the, you know, the nine years before that as well. I've been boxing since I was nine years old. So a lot of time and energy went into that and to get that close, really sort of navigate that, that um, you know, it was a bit of a failure to me, to be honest. Harry, you know, reflecting on loss, losses, and it's fascinating to hear how you don't win a bronze medal, your theory on that. I heard you interviewed um, about losing fights and you said words the effect of when you lose a fight, you tend to mellow in it, to really reflect on the loss, not wallow in it, but mellow in it. Can you talk about the importance of that, how you learn lessons? Yeah, absolutely. I actually learned this from, uh, his name's Tim Grover. So he's got a book called Relentless, unbelievable book. He was Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant's mental coach and strength conditioning coach, exceptional man. And he, and he says in the book, when you, when you fail or when you don't succeed, a really good method is to actually sit in that and understand and reflect on why it happened, um, like what went well, what didn't go well, um, what areas can you improve on, what areas can you adapt and evolve. And then when you get back up, you're in just making sure you never make that mistake again. Um, and I think that's a really valuable thing uh, for athletes if anybody in a high-performance environment to really reflect on why you didn't succeed, what didn't go well, so you can change it next time and make sure that mistake doesn't happen again. How do you how do you bookend that so it doesn't become you know maladaptive uh, rumination? You know that audio loop that's just going over and over in your head about why you lost, that you're not good enough. How do you bookend it to make sure that the lessons learnt from that fight, you're able to take a clean break into the next event? Yeah, I, I, it's an ongoing process. I think like I definitely haven't mastered the art of that. We all we all sit in negativity we obviously have a negativity bias and sometimes i talk really poorly to myself especially after a failure or a loss Um, but i think there's always coming back to what the goal is what goal am i actually wanting to achieve and for me it was the olympic gold medal and now it's become the unified champion of the world that is my goal now as a professional fighter and it's just always reflecting on that and anything that deviates off that path reflect on that why did i deviate why did that happen and bring myself back to the path of whatever that end goal is. And that is, for me, unified champion of the world. It's funny. We um, have spoken before about the military process of after-action reviews where 
you you take an event and you do exactly what you've just said, you know, look at what went right, what went wrong, what can we improve? And part of doing that is catharsis. You know, you're able to go through something and, and kind of almost bookend it. But another part, and for, especially for me personally, is you can turn it into something proactive. So, you know, instead of just saying, oh, I stuffed this up or whatever, you know, you've now got that positive spin onto your next mission that, okay, I can address this. I'm empowered to, to actually do something about it, which just changes that nuance of, of, of something that didn't go as well as you might have hoped. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. I think every, I think any high-performance environment, if you want to be the top of your field, you always look at something as an opportunity, not a problem. You mean, and every time, even if I don't succeed, even if I don't get what I want or get what I'm training for, there's always room for, for growth and opportunity if you just want to look for the lesson and everything has a lesson. And I always just try my best to look for them. The, the other thing I'm keen to ask, you know, you reflected on that period of numbness after the Olympics. And, you know, I've read before about the post-Olympic blues. And in some ways, it's not dissimilar to a lot of people where they've got a singular focus in their life and then they either achieve it or don't or it's over and um, it can impact on how you identify. Was, was that something for yourself? You know, there was such that focus on the Olympics and sort of regardless of the result, that was gone. Did you, did you have to then find that new, or was finding the new mission of, of becoming the unified champion, was that part of, of, I guess, reasserting that identity and that drive? Of course, absolutely. I don't, I 100% agree with that, but I also think I'm, I'm 24, so I'm in the middle of my, my career. And obviously, I'm a long-term planner, and I, and I knew what I was going to do post Olympics. So I was always going to turn professional and, and try and win world titles. And um, But like I look at someone like my dad. He's 54. He's been a roof tiler since he was 14, right? As a Mr. Day of Work, he's a really hardworking man. He's at the point now where it's like he can't roof tile forever. You know, and I can see him. That's his identity. That's who he is. And I can really see the, the cogs turning in his head about what am I going to be? This is all I've known. This is all I am. I can't do anything else. My dad's one of the smartest men I know. And it's like, you, I just want to try and tell him that you could be anything you set your mind to. But I can see that with him. It's his identity. Mm. And it's like, who am I if I'm not doing roof tiling? And I can totally empathize and see that in some people. It's our research has indicated that that's a problem when what's written on your business card, your role is your identity because when that's taken away, it, it creates problems. We see it a lot in some of the elite pathways, both those who you know have a big business card in the corporate world, but also elite sportsperson, but not limited to that. And so, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about your dad like that and, and our research indicates you've got to separate that your identity has to be more than what's written on your business card. And if it's not, then there's nearly a three-bar relationship to what happens to your mental health when you have your role taken away. Yeah, I've always, um, it's only in the last sort of two years that I really reflect on this, but really separating the persona as an athlete or like mm. the athlete persona, this is, and people hold you in that. A lot of people know me as that athlete persona, but also knowing myself. And I'm so much more than just that athlete. Yeah, you mean I'm a I'm a man. I lo- I love my partner. I love my family. There's so many weird and wonderful things that I love and enjoy. Uh, I'm a very weird individual, and I think most people are. But you mean I'm not just that boxer. And if I keep keep attaching myself to that boxer, then I think there's probably room for mental health issues later on in life. But I also know that I'm so much more than just that boxer. 
This is a, a beautiful segue into something that you've spoken really, um, I think, passionately and beautifully about before, and that's this idea of stereotyping that we tend from the outside to want to clump people together that, you know, you're an athlete, you're a tradie, you're a soldier, you're a man or a woman, you know, these these kind of big groups that, that don't go anywhere near describing who people are as a human. And you've, you've done a bunch of stuff. I mean, I, I can see in our video the, the painted nails, which... Um, I don't know, becoming a bit of a signature for you. But can you talk to us about, um, I guess, where that came from? Where did you start uh, seeing stereotyping as a negative thing? And, and what kind of things have you done to, to sort of bust that in, in your uh, career to date? Yeah, so when I was 16, uh, I come from like a smaller town on the outskirts of the Melbourne suburbs. I was, uh, I was really grateful that I really delved into myself and started questioning some things that I was taught from my, my family, some things that I was taught from, from my community, my environment. Um, and there's some really beautiful things that I was taught growing up, but there was also some things that I think I needed to question, some things, um, you mean, that I felt that I felt like I had to be someone that I kind of really wasn't, but I felt like I was fitting this mould that my community wanted me to be. And through that day when I was 16, I finally built up the courage a bit more. It was a slow process, but I built up the courage to start challenging these roles that I felt like were pushed on me by my family, society, friends, teachers. So, I mean, there's a bunch of courage there as well, isn't there, to, to sort of stand up to a status quo or to, to look at things differently. And I think the more people like yourself that act as role models to say that it's okay to, to sort of challenge that status quo or to be yourself or to, to do things a little bit differently. It just creates that momentum, which is wicked to see. Yeah, it's like one of the best. When I really sit down and think of I'm, I'm a massive introvert. I love thinking about this world. And when I really sit down and think about it, like the best thing about being human is some of the beautiful things that we've created, some of the cultures that we've created, the dance, the song, um, artwork, like performance art, so many beautiful things that we've created because we're all weird strange different unique as individuals and i think that's the best thing about it and when we're sort of pushed into being like some role or some you know as a male or whatever you want to identify as i think it, it it sort of takes away from the ability to be unique and strange and that's what makes such beautiful things in life i believe anyway but um mm. yeah and you've incorporated some of that into your training. Um, can you talk to, to us about ballet and the importance of that in getting prepared for a boxing match? Yeah, ballet. I uh, started so actually through uh, something that I did with the Australian Army. So the Australian Institute of Sport and the Australian Army, they come together and they started this program called the Gold Medal Ready Program. And I did my first day uh, in 2018, end of 2018, and through that day, probably the big, biggest thing that I took from it was get comfortable being uncomfortable. And, and through the growth of you know, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and through understanding yourself more, you're able to grow as a person and grow as an athlete. And I've done so many amazing challenges each month since that day. For the last three years, I've been doing a challenge. I've done things like had some really hard conversations with family members, started ballet, a public reading. That was a really hard one a 13-hour straight in a stationary bike, the list goes on. And each challenge, mm. I just learn something new about myself and about the world. And I, and I truly encourage like anyone to put themselves in an uncomfortable situation. You know, even if it's go take a dance class, it, you mean, and that feeling you get before, but when you walk out after, you just, honestly, your chest is up. You feel like you can run through a brick wall. And I just noticed the growth almost instantly in situations like that. 
And are those things transferable? I mean, focusing on the ballet by way of one example of your meaningful challenges, is there transferability from the wooden floor of a of a ballet centre into, you know, the sort four corners of a ring? Absolutely, mate. There's um, and obviously they seem so different, but when you really think about it, they're very very similar. They transfer in the weight. They make it look so elegant and effortless, but there's tension in all their muscles when they're doing ballet. And it's truly one of the hardest things to do, I reckon. Like, I've honestly, after that, I'm like sweating. I wake up the next day, I'm sore on my legs. You can't turn your back to the bar. You can't have chewing gum in your mouth. You can't wear your watch. Mm. There's so many rules and structure and discipline. And I love that. And it's very similar to combat sport. And uh, I've, I've, I think just doing any, anything, anything different, anything that humbles you, it only just makes you put your learning cap on more, it makes you learn in a different way. And then you just transfer that over to boxing anyway. So I think even if it's just the learning that you take from doing something different, but I think the biggest thing that I've taken from, from ballet is just like it really humbles me. I'm really bad at it, but I absolutely love it because my teacher's really strict on me and, and that's the best thing about it. <laughs> that's good call. Can we talk a little bit about the importance of mentors and other leaders in your life, uh, coaches? So, uh, you know, you started boxing at nine, but when you stepped in the ring, you lost 10 of your first 18 fights, you know, one in two fights you were, you were losing. Why did you continue? I mean, what was it that made you believe that you could move from losing 10 of 18 fights to being an Olympic medalist? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's an interesting question because I think, you mean, it's, there's so many moments, of course, after a loss, no one wants to lose. We all, we all do things because we love it. But I think there's numerous things as to why I stayed in. And I think probably one of the biggest was my coach, Brian Levia, who's still my coach to this day. He's 79 years old this year. He fought some of the greats, Lana Roche, and he found a back in his day. But he fed me with so much love and positivity and he gave me so much confidence. And I was a kid, I have two older brothers and and they're real blokey, real manly love. I mean, throwing dirt at each other, fighting in the backyard. And, um, you know, they're always sort of playing up with each other. And I was nothing like them. And I felt because of that, I felt like I didn't get much respect from my brothers and also a little bit from my dad. And I feel like when I walked into that boxing gym at nine years old, my coach really started feeding me with all this love and positivity. And uh, I think that's the reason as to why I kept going back, even after all those losses, because every young person wants to feel special and I felt special and I mm. walked into that place and, you know, I love that man with all my heart and I'm so grateful that I, that I met him at the age of nine and, you know, and I'll do anything for him. And, and as I said, I'm just so grateful to meet him. It's, it's really interesting. You know, our, again, our research indicates that um, you know, this mastermind group, this trusted inner circle of people that you would literally do anything for and they would do anything for you is critically important. In fact, above family, there's a Harvard psychologist, uh, um, Dr. David McClelland, who um, came up with a concept, I think, 70s, 80s, that 95% of our success is related to who we habituate with, who we, who we 
you know, hang around with. Would, would you agree with that? When you look across, uh, you know, the other side of the ring at your opponents, would you believe that that success could be ninety five percent attributed to who's in your side of on your in your uh, corner? Absolutely, I think not just in sport, but you show what's that old saying? You show me the five people you spend the most time with. You mean I'll you mean I'll show you your future pretty much, and I totally believe that. And I'm only 24, but over the last sort of three four years, I've been really conscious about sort of navigating who are the friends that you mean that they're friends, yeah, because we spent a lot of time together through school, and but they're walking in completely different re- directions, and you can still be friends with someone, but from a distance, and that's okay, you mean. But I've been really conscious about like who's around me, who's supporting me, who are the people I let. Uh, on this journey with me who are the people that I want in my circle and I'm really conscious you mean about who's in my circle because I think it's so important and so valuable to have people who I would have their back most importantly but I also know that they would have my back and and, that, and that's the biggest thing I think for a team even extending beyond that I'm, I'm starting to get a lot more interested about what I'm allowing myself to be exposed to you know you you sort of see a lot of stuff in social media and and a lot of different uh, sort of inputs of that nature and it, it can be toxic some of it and you know so guarding yourself not just with the humans you surround with but by the the information and, and what you're watching and consuming from that aspect I think can can have a massive impact in terms of your attitude and, and how you progress I couldn't agree more mate I think we all well most of us would know that we're obviously hardwired to think about the negative so like it's like through through since the Olympics I've seen probably thousands of messages you mean my my instagram blew up and it was crazy it was like i'm just a young boy from a smaller town it's pretty crazy to think that was going to happen to me and it's like 99 percent of it is positive but i remember that one percent because we're obviously hardwired to think about the negative and it's quite it's quite amazing that that happens you get 99 you get heaps thousands of positive messages but you remember that one percent of bad messages and it's quite amazing but I'm so glad that I'm aware of that. I mean, I'm so glad that I can navigate that. But I feel for people who may not be aware of that and may be stuck in this negative feedback loop because it's really hard to get out of sometimes. Um, Harry, you've spoken a fair bit about uh, things you've done that, to me, display a lot of moral courage, you know, standing up for what you believe in, breaking stereotypes and being your own person. I'm interested in the other side of courage, the, the actual physical courage. Do you or have you ever been scared in the ring you know combat sports are are pretty intimate pretty confronting and how do you you deal with that kind of um uh you know human on human violence probably the the most base kind of uh drive that that people have got yeah it's um like of course don't get me wrong i get extremely nervous and anxious just before a fight but i think that's very natural you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable situation and there's a lot on the line your manhood your pride, your ego, you don't want to get and, and I'm so, as I said, I'm so grateful I started so young because I'm in that ring now. But at the start of my boxing career, I felt I was really nervous for for about my first 20 fights. I was really, really nervous. And um, I'm grateful now that I've had a lot of education through the things like that GMR program and, and to give me techniques like for me being really conscious of my breath you know, and bringing myself back to just real basic things in my body, um, just a form of meditation before I go out and compete. I'm making sure I prepare properly. If my preparation isn't right, I will be on fight day and I'll be nervous and I'll be in my head, a lot more negative thoughts. If I prepare properly, my, my nerves and my angst are a lot more relaxed. 
So these are just a few things for me that really help me make sure that on fight day, I'm just thinking about the job at hand. That's to get in there and beat my opponent. And in amateurs, you would have to fight again. So then just get back to the change room, recover, reflect, and focus on the next mission. You've described training as being meditative. Uh, we couldn't let this go past without asking you what does a normal training day look for uh, look like and how is it meditative? Yeah, I, I, I actually truly believe um, the best form, the most natural form of meditation is actually physical exercise. I think that's a time where we're probably most likely to hit flow state. And I think flow state is kind of meditation in its most purest form. I think when you're, when for me, when I'm training, um, I'm just focusing to what's happening in front of me. I'm definitely not thinking about my phone or distractions or bills or girlfriends. I'm not thinking about any of that. I'm just <laughs> thinking about training and my breath and my body's hurting and I'm pushing myself. I have a goal and um, yeah, I think it's beautiful, beautiful, and and I love absolutely pushing myself to to my limits, and um, you know, that that feeling of like wanting to quit and then beating that voice in your head after not quitting, like that's quite an amazing feeling, and um, yeah, I, I truly love it, and I, I I truly do believe it's probably the most natural form of meditation that we can have. I'd a hundred percent agree. I, I think if you define mindfulness as being in the moment and concentrating on one single thing then there's nothing that sharpens that like someone trying to punch you in the head. I mean, you, like you say, you're not thinking about the girlfriend or the credit card bill or, or what's on TV, are you? 100%. Hey, Harry, stupid rookie question. What are the Olympics like? So take aside the sport... What, what was the, the sort of um, situation like? Like the athlete's village, the, the sort of pinnacle of this career, you, you've got what I imagine is an amazing experience but then a, a really big focus in the middle of it with your, your event. Can you describe how that, that felt and, and some of your reflections on the actual wider experience of the Olympics? Yeah, it was, um, it was amazing. Every, I'm just a sporting fan, to be honest. I, I dreamt of going to the Olympics when I was seven years old, watching Grant Hackett. 2000 swim the 1500 meter final and um yeah that moment was probably the moment that i really sort of had this birth that i wanted to go to the olympics and represent our beautiful country and to sort of look down get given your olympic uniform and look down on your heart and see the australian emblem with the olympic rings is like i'm just a sporting fan mate and words will never really articulate what that actually means to, to someone like me and um the experience was amazing but also as well i probably got to add as boxes we make weight <clears throat> so like I was locked <laughs> in my room my first comp was on the second day second last so that whole time I was pretty much locked in my room I wasn't going to the dining hall I wasn't doing that much I would sometimes go down from my room and watch uh, the Australian headquarters watch other athletes compete with the Australian team that was amazing um but on a positive note, there was this moment. It was quite amazing. I had on probably the third day. And I just remember there was a beautiful night. It was really warm. It was on dusk, beautiful sky. I was just thinking in my head, this is what humans can create when we put our heads together. It was this beautiful, like, nurturing, uh, like, wholesome moment. And I really wanted to hold that. I mean, that was quite amazing. But as I said, for most of the time, I was just in my room really focusing on the mission. <laughs> making weight and did, did COVID <laughs> take any of the 
any of the sting out of the Olympic experience or was it still as tremendous as you had have uh, expected? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to say. Obviously, I've never been to the Olympics before, so it's really hard to say. I think for me, mate, it was still amazing. And, and obviously, I know a lot of Australia through the Olympics were going through some, a lot of the East Coast were going through a lot of, a lot of trouble, going to lockdown. Um, and stuff like that and and i know it gave people a lot of hope and it gave people something happy something positive in their life through that crazy time and um, i'm glad that we could have that impact on, on on the community of australia but yeah it's really hard to say as i said i've never been to olympics but i'm, I'm going to try and push for 2024 so i can experience a normal olympics for sure yeah, amazing. I think you'd want to be a swimmer and not a marathon runner. You get all your events out in the first week and party for the next two rather than have to wait till the very last event of the Games. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually one of the benefits of being a boxer. So this Olympics, obviously due to COVID, straight after your event, because of COVID, you'd have to go home. So because of boxing, yeah. because our event was starting on the mom one was on the first day, and then the last event is on the second last day. So we were there for the whole two weeks. Not many sports actually had that. So I'm grateful for that in a sense. How um, do you get to know other members of the team? Um, obviously, probably more on the boxing side. But is is there opportunities, or did you in the particularly in the COVID environment have opportunities to meet the wider team and and meet people from totally different sporting backgrounds? Yeah, I think the beauty of actually being a COVID Olympics. We were sort of advised not to sort of walk around the village as much as possible and interacting with other teams. So there was a lot more foot traffic in the Australian headquarters. So meeting people like Paddy Mills, Ash Barty, Jess Fox, these are people, Kate Campbell, these are people who I've looked up to for a long, long time. And um, to sort of share a space with them, you know, it was quite amazing. And I think because of COVID, because we weren't going to other sports, we weren't socialising with other teams, other um, countries, we were locked in the Australian headquarters and just really sort of forming this like amazing bond with each other. And that's why I think it was one of the most successful Olympics that we've had in a long time. It was, it was amazing because of this sort of dynamics we had of us just supporting each other. You're a boxer. You must have a power song, Harry. What's your power song? Um, it's probably, uh, I think one of my next walkout songs is going to be Jimmy Barnes' Working Class Man. Yes, yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, Actually, my, my power song is No Second Prize by Jimmy Barnes. I love that. Love that. Too good. Well, there you go. So the Unforgiving 60 podcast has the Unforgiving 60 playlist on Spotify. So all of our guests have given us their power songs. I actually think Working Class Man might already be on there. But if it's not, we'll whack it on there for you, Harry. That's fantastic. What, um, what, what, what other favourite power songs have you got? Any particular genre of music or artist? I'm the type of person, mate. I, uh, I say this is a joke, but um, you know, I actually think I have mild bipolar because I, I literally just press shuffle on my playlist and anything comes up. You mean I'm a big person. Music really affects me. Um, and I try my best not to listen to music before a fight because it really affects me. And I press shuffle on my playlist. One minute you're listening to sort of gangster music or something like that. And the next minute you're listening to some Taylor Swift or something like that. It's just a really, really big contrast. <laughs> and um, as I said, it sort of plays my emotions a little bit. I think I've, I've shared this story before, Harry. I've, I've got a pretty eclectic and, and ultimately pretty embarrassing uh, playlist. And I remember 
in a gym in East Timor, sort of full of these. You imagine these big sort of commandos and SAS guys. And I put my playlist on the the sort of radio in this this open air gym. You know, shirts off, this sort of thing. And it's you know it's got its sort of hard rock song. You know, a bit of driving, like you say, a bit of gangster rap. And then it cuts to the next song, which was like a Britney Spears or something. <laughs> I'm sort of <laughs> shuffling over to try and sort of skip to the next one. But um, yeah, I'm with you on the on the the change up in the music. Hey, um, speaking of inspiration, um, you've got a, a number of inspiring uh, sort of people for you tattooed on your leg. Can you talk us through your, your gallery of ink? Yeah, so they're all uh, my favourite boxers. So everyone but one boxer went to the Olympics and, and represented their country and, and won a medal for their country and then they all turned pro and become some of the best boxers that we've ever seen. Muhammad Ali, Vasily Lomachenko, two-time Olympic gold medalist, Andre Ward, Roy Jones Jr., Sugar Ray Leonard, and Bernard Hopkins. These are some of my absolute favorite athletes. And, um, yeah, like I, I love this sport with all my heart. And to be honest, mate, success is just a bonus. Of course, I'm really ambitious and, and you mean, I want to be successful. Don't get me wrong. But I do boxing because of the feeling it gives me. Anything else is just a bonus. Boxing makes me extremely happy. It, as I said, it's a space where I can go and meditate for two hours you know, in every day of my life. And, um, yeah, I'm just so grateful that I, I found this sport at nine years old. And, yeah, the fighters on my leg, I just hope I can be half as good as them when I'm older. But I've also heard you reflect that it's not just that technical skill. You, you, There are some really great boxers that you deliberately don't have on your leg because maybe they, they haven't been really good people in, in other aspects of your life. It, um, so it's it's not just about the sport for you, is it? No, absolutely not. I think I think as a society, sometimes we put athletes or, or celebrities or people with money, we put them up on this like little special um, shelf. When I think sometimes like we really need to reflect on these people that we are putting up on this like little little special place. And um, people like Floyd Mayweather, I mean, he got convicted of beating up his, his partner, and Mike Tyson convicted of rape. Like I don't, I don't. I'm not taking anything away from their boxing abilities. They're fantastic athletes, and I love watching them. Don't get me wrong. I love watching them. I don't support that at all. Um, and, and I think we really need to reflect on these people that we, we sort of give respect to just because they have money or they're good at, good at something and stuff like that. Really, I think we should start focusing on you know, respecting someone for their personality and their character, someone like an Ash Barty. She is someone who she shows such positivity to the sport of tennis and to the sport in Australia and that's someone as an athlete that we need to look up because she's a good human, not just a good athlete. And um, yeah, I just much prefer respecting people for good athlete, a good human, sorry, rather than being a good athlete. And you're clearly both role model and great athlete. And I'm, I'm curious as a parent that probably wouldn't have put my children into boxing programs. Why should people consider putting their kids into boxing programs? Yeah, that's something that like, obviously I've got to focus on making sure my boxing career is successful. But later on in life, I really want to try my best implement putting combat sport, maybe not boxing, I can totally understand that, but putting combat sport into schools. You're making it, making it like semi-compulsory to doing it at schools. Because I truly do think sports like wrestling, judo, taekwondo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, there's a lot of like really powerful lessons that kids can learn at such a young age about respect you take your mat off in some of the, or take your, show your shoes off before you jump on the mat. You bow to your master. There's so many good life lessons that I think our young people could take for the rest of their life. And as I said, I can understand boxing and kickboxing because of the head trauma. I can truly understand that. But 
if you can implement any combat sport into into a school, I think our, our younger generation will be completely different. I have a very very undistinguished, very unillustrious sort of uh, boxing career. But I, I did a little bit and I, I came to it relatively late in life. But one of the things that really struck me was, um, I guess, how aware it makes you of, I guess, the implications of violence. Um, you know, this idea that oh, if we teach people to box, they're likely to get into fights. I, I reckon it's the absolute opposite. And and I'll never forget just how difficult it was to judge, you know, someone you're sparring against, whether they're going to be good or not just from from um, uh, first glance. And so it really made you sort of consider this violence, you know, as a, as a last resort and, and something to be respected. Absolutely. I think it's um, one of the biggest things that I've learned from boxing is the self-love and self-confidence. And it's like when, when you've got enough self-confidence, you don't need to go fight someone on the street. You don't need to go try and prove yourself. Um, you don't need to because you've got enough self-confidence and self-understanding and self-love that I'm able to, I'm less reactive now because of boxing. I'm, I'm less explosive. I'm less aggressive. I'm, you know, all these things that I've learned from the sport of boxing and respecting myself and, and self-love and self-confidence is purely because of boxing. Mm. The, the other one for me, I think, is the idea of resilience, which we're very interested in. But, you know, the first time you get hit in the head, you're, you're like a smacked cat. You know, your body naturally flinches and you think it's the end of the world. But that idea that you can actually take a knock and, as you said, if you keep emotionally regulated, if you keep your wits about you, you can pr- progress. I mean, that's a wonderful sort of metaphor for, for life, isn't it? That you, you can take these hits and you, you can keep your head and keep going. Absolutely. And that's the reality. It's like no one is going to go through their life without being hit by life. That's for sure. And if you can, if you can learn to to take the punch, if you can learn to adapt, if you can learn to reflect and hopefully that doesn't happen again, you mean you'll be you'll be better served for life for sure. Ben jumped in the ring with Chris Collard, Aboriginal kickboxing world champion a couple <laughs> of years ago. How did that go, speaking of your less than distinguished boxing career? It I, I Harry, I, I it was not a win. So just so we're <laughs> clear, I did not get up uh, by any long shot. Chris Chris was actually very um uh, gracious in in not um, sort of pummeling me as hard as he could have, but it was awesome in terms of just that kind of face you fear. Um, it was certainly a case where I was trying to put into uh, consideration all of those kind of calming techniques and keep your head and um, yeah, it, it was a good good uh, good life event. If certainly not a win, you did not get up. I did not get in the <laughs> ring. There was no way I was going to get in the ring with a. A former world champion kickboxer. You um, have, have also described this principle of vulnerability and being in the ring making you vulnerable. There's nowhere to hide. Could you talk a little bit about that, Harry? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's going to... Mean, obviously, there's no real vulnerability or intimacy like going into combat in the army. You know I mean? So there's, that's probably the biggest form of, of intimacy and, and vulnerability, I think, actually going into battle with someone. But I think with combat, we're, we're locked in a space, we're locked in a ring, we're locked in a cage, and there's one other person, and you're in there trying to hurt them. You're in there, you feel so scared, timid. There's so many things, confident. There's so many emotions that are running through your body in that moment, and you still get in there, and you still have a red hot crack and there's no real malice up for me there's no real malice in what i'm doing 
I'm just in there to beat my opponent and execute my game plan. And um, yeah, it's the most vulnerable state I feel like I've been in my life besides probably a relationship. Um, they're probably two that really complement each other. Um, but yeah, being inside a ring, it's, it's scary. It's, it's, it's really sort of scary sometimes, but that feeling of overcoming that fear um, and, and walk and draw is always growth for moments like that. do you need to be that world champion what's perhaps missing that you're trying to improve in order to to make it to that top of the podium um, as a world champion yeah that's a that's a good question i think it's quite amazing that i I think over the last sort of 10 20 years we've really just reflected on mindset the thing between our two ears that's the thing that really separates you know average sort of people to to high level performers and um, yeah, I'm just really focusing on making sure that my, my mindset is, is really powerful and really strong and and I'm always looking to grow. I'm doing something uh, this weekend. I'm going up to Queensland to do this self-help um, breathwork course and, and just trying different techniques, trying weird and wonderful things. And if it helps me half a percent, then, then that's, that's a bonus. If it doesn't help me, I still try it and I'll probably still get something from it. Um, you know, but I'm always just going to keep trying to grow my mindset. And of course, I can train harder. Um, I can listen to my coach. I can try new techniques. I can do stuff like that for sure. But I think the biggest thing we can do as athletes is just focus on our mindset. When you look at the transition from amateur to professional, obviously all professional sports have got uh, particularly high stakes ones, lots of money involved. There's the potential of things like performance enhancing drugs, things like match fixing, things like corruption um, within uh, the, the judging side of things. How does that impact you? Is that a different sort of environment from what you found in the amateurs? And does it impact your sort of um, approach and the, the way you, you want to box and prepare? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm a, I'm a really honest athlete. So when it comes to like performance enhancing drugs, I would honestly much prefer being knocked out and embarrassed and take a performance enhancing performance enhancing drug knowingly. Um, you mean I feel sorry for those people who um, that that swimmer I forget her name, Shiana Jack or whatever her name was. She got done for a performance enhancing drug when it was like there's literally people overseas that are knowingly and consciously cheating. She gets done on something like that. I actually feel sorry for her. I, obviously, whatever goes in your body is your fault, and I, and I do totally understand that. But I, I actually felt for her in that moment. But yeah, the transition from amateur professional, there's corruption in the amateurs, there's corruption in professionals, but all we can do is control what we can control and you know, making sure that I prepare properly and do all that I can to be the best athlete that I possibly can. And, and when I get inside that ring, you, mean, you can take a substance, you can take anything my opponent, you mean, but I'll be fully prepared and I'll be ready for whatever you throw at me. And I, I think, you know, we, we look at, uh, this idea of fairness from a lot of different ac- angles and 
the the summary we've come to is that that life isn't fair that that people are going to cheat and sometimes those people are going to get away with it and they're going to win um, but ultimately that doesn't mean you should do it yourself you know if if you're doing it for the the right reasons then yeah there's there's no point in stooping to those levels um, if it's going to compromise that yeah it's all about integrity as well like what what type of person do you want to be like of course don't get me wrong Canelo Alvarez. Not many people would say he's one of the best boxers in the world at the moment, but I truly believe he's a drug cheat. He got caught with something in his system and he got away with it. And I'm thinking something shift is going on there and I don't respect any man like that. Honestly, I truly believe this with all my heart. A combat sport, if you are taking a performance-enhancing drug, you should either be sanctioned to go to jail or get your boxing license taken off you because you're playing with someone's life. You're playing with someone's life. This isn't, this isn't like golf or, or tennis you are literally playing with someone's life if someone cops a punch to the head they could potentially potentially not be here tomorrow and um yeah i think if anyone gets down they should really sort of potentially go to jail you've described yourself as a bit of a history nerd clearly you're a philosopher <laughs> um i'm really curious about what's sitting on your bedside table what are you reading at the moment or well, at the moment i'm reading have you heard of the andre agassi book no. Unbelievable. I'm, uh, I'm like two chapters in. I started it two days ago. It is unbelievable. Uh, what else have I got here? I've got Think Like a Monk, Jay Shetty. Yes. Um, I've got uh, Stephen uh, Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective of People. Of Highly Effective People. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I've got um, Power of Now, which is about meditation. I've oh, got nice choice, Eckhart well. Tolle. This one as well about the Nike Foundation. I haven't started that one yet, so... Uh, plenty of books, mate, and I, uh, I absolutely love listening to audio books and podcasts and um, yeah, anything to sort of spark something in my brain. So speaking of some of these brain-sparking things, um, I read an interview where you, you spoke about Schultz tables, and I'd never heard of a Schultz table. Mm. I, I went out and Googled it and then comprehensively embarrassed myself. I, I think I'm still trying to get, get my times down. Can you talk a bit about... A, what that is, and B, um, why you've you've chosen things like that as as kind of these alternate ways to to look at just getting that step better. Yeah, I think when you get to the sort of high um, high levels of sport, I think if you, as I said, if you can just improve half a percent, then that, that's going to help. And my favourite fighter who I've got tatted on my leg, Vasily Lomachenko, he actually started it, and he actually started Ukrainian traditional dancing. So that was my inspiration as well to start ballet. Um, and yeah, he does salute tables at the end of the day. So he does that, finds one to 25, and then he stacks blocks because how he explains it, all boxing is at the end of the day is reaction speed from here to here. Who can react the quickest? And at the end of the day, when you're tired, you're fatigued, you've trained two, three times, you're depleted sometimes because you're making weight, you do that at the end of the day and you stack a few blocks on top of each other, that's all it's doing is making this stronger, the relationship between your brain and your hands. And um, as I said, if it can help me half a percent, then it's done its job. And you, you occasionally get a, a pretty neat party trick out of it. I, I saw a video of you juggling uh, for, for similar sort of purposes, that hand-eye sort of situation, but pretty sharp, mate. looks pretty good. Yeah, I love my juggling. I've, um, Vasily Lomachenko, try and look some of the stuff he does. I'm definitely nowhere near him, but I'll try my best to get there. Those Schultz tables moved your needle half a percent or one percent, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have you not noticed? I, I was watching him <laughs> trying to find one, then two, then three. Yeah, suffice to say, uh, the you know finger to brain connection. No, it's not strong. And and thirteen, it's become this thing for me that 
for some reason I, I stall there and now I know I'm going to stall. So I've, I've got to, I find if I can get into a flow state and just, just see the number rather than look for it, I can <laughs> occasionally get it. But it's bloody handy things. We'll link in the show notes, but but quite an interesting little brain brain training. Was that Mahatma Gandhi that said, be the number you want to be in life? <laughs> no, I <don't> <laughs> no, I don't think so either. Um, who else? So you mentioned right at the start that, that your Olympic dream was sparked at age nine, Grant Hackett. I've heard you refer to, to sort of Kathy Freeman and Ian Thorpe as, as early sort of idols. Who else has... Um, I guess, motivated or impressed you in the wider sporting world? Uh, you think about so many people. I think the moment you would all remember this, 2005, Australia versus Uruguay, John Aloisi, mm. UBG, Mark Schwartz, were those two amazing saves. Like Moments like that, I was obviously grew up in Melbourne, um, the 2005-2006 Grand Finals where it was the kick in it. Um, moments like that, I just remember being fully connected with my family. I'm a cricket nerd. I love cricket as well. And, and there was just so many moments growing up. This country is obviously built on sport. It's one of the things we're most proud of is our sporting culture. And um, we, have, we hold such a rich identity to the rest of the world with our sporting presence. And yeah, I, I was just like that. And my parents enabled me when I was younger to play every sport and we were always watching sport on the weekend. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm, I'm really grateful because I think sport, whether it be a team sport or an individual sport, it's one of the best places to go, especially as a young person, to sort of find out who you are learn to sort of communicate with the team and it really prepares you, I think, for the rest of life. And, and I'm so grateful I played so many sports growing up. Mm. How or what's changed for you since the Olympics, Harry? I, I don't know if heaps have changed. I think I personally, and I think naturally this happens around this time anyway, I think I probably matured more uh, in the last year than any other year. Um, I really sort of Prior to the Olympics, I was really conscious about who was going to come out of the woodwork. I was you know, really conscious about how I was preparing for the Olympics. Um, there's things post the Olympics, people sort of coming and, and you're in like people who were in my life when they were young, but now they're coming back and wanting to sort of be friends and stuff like that. Like I was really conscious that mm. this was going to happen. And I just think I've matured. That's probably the biggest thing. I, I really, moments like that, I reflect a lot. I really want to be the best version of myself and I'm not perfect, mate. I slip up all the time and um, you mean this all, everything I've said on this is positive, but we're all human. You mean I have a dark side too. I have negative things as well. And um, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I try my best every day to really reflect and grow. And um, I think I just matured since the Olympics more than ever. And when's your next fight? I got one on the 30th of, of March. So that gets announced next week, which is exciting. And, I'm uh, just really excited to get back in there, mate. I'm, I'm an athlete. We just love competing. And these NRL players, the AFL players, they play every week. And buddy boxes, we fight buddy once every two, three months. And I want to fight yeah. all the time, mate. <laughs> Where is that fight, Harry? I believe it's in Sydney. Not fully confirmed yet, but I believe it's in Sydney. Oh, we'll track that with much interest. You're sure. an absolute superstar. Listen, Harry, thank you. That's been a buddy inspirational chat. I've, I've really enjoyed um chatting to you and really appreciate your your candor and, and sharing your thoughts with us hey thank you so much for having me on We're thanks good. harry cheers okay train hard now to the debrief we try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input please let us know your feedback the good the bad or the ugly Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. 
You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60.